Thanks, James. Thanks for reading that. Hey, my name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. <clears throat> Why don't we start off by praying together, hey? Father God, we're so thankful to come and listen to you. Would you calm our minds? Uh, if we're restless or distracted, would you um, put those distractions to the side? Would you help us to be able to listen to you well this morning? We pray for those of us uh, here this morning who, um, yeah, I guess need, some, need to have you diagnose our hearts. In all the different ways that you're going to do that through your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to see what you're doing among us by your word in our hearts, diagnosing where we are tempted to put our security, where we're tempted to look to other things. Help us to see those and see something much better that you have for us this morning. Amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at a bit of a case study in security. See, one thing that I think all of us have in common as humans is the desire for security, to be secure. You think like in every area of life, security is where you flourish. So think uh, children. Children thrive in secure households where they know their parents love them and they're safe. Or businesses thrive in kind of stable economy where it's secure neighborhoods where there's not crime. Or in relationships with your friends, with your, um, if you're married, then how do those relationships thrive? Well, if you're secure, if you feel like you're safe in them. Uh, so we all want security, but the problem for lots of us is that we can go to find security in the wrong places. One psychologist I looked at this week kind of spoke about that the cure for your insecurities is good posture. Right, just kind of like, you know, lift your shoulders up, put them back, like, that'll fix your, all your insecurities. And I think, you know, there's, I'm not, good posture's good, right? Like, I sit at a desk a lot and I slouch over. I could probably take some advice from that. But I don't think it's going to fix my insecurities. Or another one that I saw this week was the idea of manifesting. Uh, this is kind of big on social media. You kind of like say the things that you want in your life and then you manifest them and, and, and they'll kind of come out. And, you know, it's this, this idea of like, oh, I'm in control. I can get the things that I want by just kind of willing them hard enough. <laughs> you know, there's something probably good there about having clear goals, but to put your security there, oh, risky. Well, one survey I looked at in, from the US said that the magic number for financial security was $500,000. For starters, I think that's like such a small percentage of the population, even in Western countries, that like who's actually got that kind of money lying around? But for second, does that mean that every person that doesn't have that is insecure with no hope of ever finding security? Just this week, I, I was reading about the Icelandic billionaire. His name's going to come up on the screen, and I'll put it there because I'll probably murder saying it. Uh, Björn Golfer Gudmundsson. <laughs> I don't know how I went at that. Icelandic billionaire, and he went from having over a billion dollars to being bankrupt and filing for bankruptcy kind of overnight when the bank, his, the bank that he had his money in in Iceland just collapsed. Uh, it was, he put his trust in his wealth and put it in a bank thinking that everything would be safe, but overnight he was bankrupt. See, when it comes down to it, there are lots of wrong places to find our security. And particularly, I think, for us in the Western 21st century world, our wealth, our economic stability, is a key place where we are tempted to put that security. 
It has this way of building complacency in our lives, and we find it so hard not to put our trust in the fact that we've got money set aside. We've got somewhere secure to live. We've got enough kind of to, to if anything was to happen, I can deal with it. Right? The question we're going to ask today is, what does a truly secure life look like? How would a secure person live? How would they relate to others? What would they dream about? How would they spend their money? And we're going to see in Amos 6 and 7, it's, it's really it's a case study of false security. So the first, thing, first point in your outlines, well, it's actually not in the outlines, but I'll tell you it, is false security, Israel's false security. So have, you, have your Bible open. We're going to kind of work through the passage together. And by now, at this point in Amos, I hope you're familiar with the historical setting of the book of Amos. It's written in the 8th century BC to the northern 10 tribes of Israel after the nation had split in to 10 northern tribes, two southern tribes, a couple hundred years earlier. And the people are living in this great period of economic and political success. They've conquered all their enemies. They're really wealthy. And pick it up with me in chapter 6, verse 1. It describes Israel as being at ease in Zion. They feel secure on the hill of Samaria. They're this this people that are at ease. They feel secure. They kind of feel comfortable in their lives. And, and Amos kind of goes on to highlight what that looks like in their life. So come down to verse 4 with me. He says this about them. They lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches, then dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but they, they do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph." You can see the kind of word picture that Amos is trying to paint here, can't you? They're fine dining at all the fanciest hotels. They're eating the lambs from the flock, which is great because the lambs taste the best, but also they're the smallest and so they cost the most and they don't grow up and actually give anything back to the flock. You know, I was told when I moved here to New Zealand that there'll be heaps of great tasting lamb, but the cost of lamb in New Zealand is like through the roof. So we, can, we get this, don't we? If you're eating the lambs, you're wealthy, right? I saw the price of lamb in the shops here, and it just blew me away. And isn't verse 5 just a funny, like, hilarious kind of verse? They're sitting around, like, tapping on different things to see what noise it makes, improvising songs and kind of trying to invent musical instruments. Now, I think this is probably because they didn't have the internet back then, right? If they had the internet, they'd probably just be binging on Netflix and, and YouTube. But this is the kind of equivalent of like a life with no aim or purpose, just trying to, just like, oh, what instrument could we come up with today? So much free time, not a care in the world. They're just kind of living their days, aimlessly going through life, living for their own pleasure. There are people at ease, a people who feel secure a people with no thought to their relationship with God and no care what he might think of the way that they're living. And, and as I read that description of them there, I was struck by the similarities between the people back in Israel in Amos's day and Auckland today. See, we're obsessed with comfort, with having the best of things, with kind of whiling away our time on different pursuits and hobbies and interests and just the things that we want to enjoy. Even I found myself this week saying to Sophie, I'd love to get a more comfy couch. <laughs> We've bought a few different couches I've traded me and, one, and I, just, I haven't found one that I can like sink into and have a nap on. Now, I don't think I'm going to go out and buy an ivory couch, but 
I'm a little bit like them. Are you? Do you see some of the similarities here? Auckland's a foodie city. There's a restaurant for everyone. There's, there's a, you know, when the country was in lockdown uh, last year, they kept the bottle shops, the liquor shops open because that was an essential service. We're just like the people of Israel drinking wine by the bowlful, anointing ourselves with oils. I reckon if you ask the average Aucklander what the aim of life is, they'd say something like the aim of life is having a fulfilling life, uh, which I enjoy, and being able to care for those around me. I I think most people would say something like that. To be able to save wisely, invest well, retire early, live comfortably. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we can feel that pull too, even as, as Christians, as people who trust Jesus. See, we're not immune to this way of thinking that is prevalent today in Auckland and that was prevalent in Israel so many years ago. See, for Israel, and I think for Aucklanders today, our wealth and our security that we feel has caused us to forget God. We're filled with the kind of pride of, look what we've achieved, look what I've done. And it leads us to a sense of complacency, a sense of being captivated not by God or wanting anything to do with him, but by us, by ourselves and what we've achieved and what we're looking forward to. See, verse 3 says this, they dismiss any thought of the evil day and they bring in a reign of violence. They totally have forgotten that God is God and he's in control and he cares how we live as his people and, and they just care about themselves. They've forgotten that judgment is coming on those who take advantage of the vulnerable and who are selfish and self-centered. See, Israel's physical needs are met, but they are spiritually bankrupt. Their physical needs are met, but they're spiritually bankrupt. And instead of being God's people set apart by him to love and bless those around them, they've now moved to thinking about themselves and their own enjoyment And trusting in what they can do, not in God. They've become self-sufficient. Israel are a little bit like my three-year-old daughter, Eden. At the moment, Eden is going through that stage that all little kids go through where they think that they can do everything. And so in the morning, we get up and she says, I want to have my breakfast. And I say, okay, let me get it for you. And that's like, if you, like, that is melt, you're heading into meltdown territory at that point, right? Like, what she wants more than anything is to just do it herself. And so she goes to our fridge, gets out a big three liter bottle of milk, and tries to like heave it onto the bench. And I say, can I help you pour it? No, no, I'm not interested. I don't want, I don't want your help, Dad. I can do it. She insists that she can do it herself. And it usually ends up with milk all over the bench, all over the floor, all over her. And, and if I try and do it, she has a meltdown. She insists that she doesn't need anyone else and that she can do it on her own. And you and I, we can do the exact same thing. Israel are the equivalent of toddlers here, right? Spiritual toddlers, insisting that they can do it on their own, trusting in their own wealth, their own skills, and their own influence to get what they want in the world. We do that too. We, we insist that we can do it on our own and we don't need God and that we would be better off without him. And so just like Israel needed to hear the warning from Amos, we need to hear the exact same warning. See, have a look at verse 7 with me, chapter 6. It says, there's a few different places we're going to go to. The first one in verse 7 says this, Therefore they will now go into exile as the first of the captives, 
and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. I loathe Jacob's pride and hate his citadels, so I will hand over the city and everything in it. Do you see there the problem? Their pride. God hates their pride and their insistence that they don't need him. And in verse 9 to 11, he kind of outlines the destruction. Verse 11 says that the, the large houses will be smashed to pieces and the smaller houses to rubble. This is a kind of total sense of destruction and judgment that's coming on Israel. And, and what we see in verse 14 is that it's a destruction that is actually the result of God. God is the one who sits behind the things that are about to happen to them. So he says this, But look, I am raising up a nation against you, the house of Israel. This is the declaration of the Lord, God of armies. And they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. They're kind of two regions, kind of north and south. It's kind of the whole region will be oppressed by this nation that God is going to bring. It's a clear picture, isn't it? Destruction is coming to Israel because of their insistence to not listen to God, to reject him, to want to do things on their own. We know the proverb, don't we? Pride comes before a fall. And here we see for Israel that this is coming true in this narrative. They're proud of their wealth, their comfort, all the good things that they have, their food, their entertainment, the little musical instruments that they can make. And it's all about to come crashing down around them. See, this is the second point that this bit of Amos shows us. It shows us God's patient judgment. God's patient judgment. That's point two. What we see after this picture of Israel's false security and pride and God's promise of judgment, it, we get three visions that kind of highlight two things, God's patience and his justice. See, look at the visions with me. The first one in chapters 7, verses 1 to 3, it consists of, God, of this vision that Amos sees of a swarm of locusts, which come out and they eat all the vegetation of the land. And if you're a farming society and you've got no plants left, things aren't going to go well for you. It's a picture of destruction. And I think perhaps even a metaphor of the coming army that's going to come and swarm all over the land. But look what Amos says when he gets this vision from God in verse 2. He says in verse 2, Lord God, please forgive. How will Jacob survive since he's so small? See, Amos here acts as a prophet, not just speaking to the people on behalf of God, but speaking to God on behalf of the people. And he cries out for forgiveness. And the surprising thing I think that we see in verse 3 is that God answers him. He says, the Lord relented concerning this. It will not happen, he said. See, God, Amos pleads for forgiveness, and the Lord relents. That's amazing. And in fact, it happens again in verses 4 to 6, which instead of this time, instead of locusts, it's fire and destruction that's going to come. But Amos pleads for God to forgive them, and God relents two times. This is amazing. See, the people, they're proud. They're evil. There's been no sign in the book that they actually want to come back to God and seek his forgiveness. It's just Amos. On their behalf. And because of one voice, God holds back his judgment. See, this, this actually shows us something really key about God. It shows us his heart and his character. Ezekiel 33:11 puts it like this. This is another prophet of Israel. He says, This talking about God speaking about himself, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. See, God doesn't take pleasure in the destruction and the death of the wicked. He, he wants them to come back to him. 
God's heart is a heart of mercy and compassion for his people. And the book of Amos has shown us that, hasn't it, week after week. God has been so patient with his people. He's brought the prophets to, to warn them, to show them where they've been rebelling against him. He's, he continually gives his people chance after chance to come back, continually showing his patience and his mercy. Another prophet, another warning. But God will judge. God will judge. But here, what we want to highlight is it's God's mercy and compassion that's on show, that he would hold back the judgment because of what Amos pleads. And isn't it amazing that what we see here is that the God of the universe listens to our prayers. He listens to the prayer of Amos. I think that's just amazing that how big God is and he listens to one person's prayer. Sometimes we have this view of God where we think, hey, God, God's kind of like a clockmaker. He kind of puts all the pieces together of the world, winds it up, and then just like lets it go and lets, it do its, lets the world do its thing. And he's kind of distant and absent from it. But what we see here is that God's not like that. He doesn't just set the world in motion and then let it go. He's not distant and absent from the world, but he's involved and in the personal, relational way with the people of this world. He's in control of all of history and all of the events of our lives, and yet he listens to us. And, and he uses our prayers and his, he uses them for his plans and purposes in the world. Isn't that amazing? God listens to us. God's not fickle or changeable. He doesn't change his mind, but what he does is he's open to the appeals of his people that are in line with his character. See, Amos pleads for God to repent, for God to relent, because he knows who God is. God's a God of mercy and compassion. He's slow to anger and he loves to forgive. He doesn't delight in the death of his people. See, we don't live in a closed universe, a simple kind of cosmic karma where cause and effect just happen. We live in the world where, we live in a world where God is in control, but that he uses our prayers and our pleas and, and wants us to bring those things to him. We don't live in this system of karma. In the New Testament, in the book of James, uh, he talks about the reality in chapter 4 that we don't have things because we don't ask. Isn't that amazing? God wants us to bring a request to him. And he says, if the reason I haven't granted is because you haven't asked. If you would ask, I would have done it. Or in chapter 5, verse 16, it's up on the screen. It says, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. And he goes on to highlight the, the life of Elijah who prayed for the rain to stop. And, and God heard that prayer and answered it. See, I think this passage shows us that prayer is not a game. Prayer's not wishful thinking. So many people in, in Auckland that don't know God, when you're sick or when something happens in your life that's hard, what do they say? I'm thinking of you. And that gives us some comfort, doesn't it? But how much more powerful for the one who knows God, who has access to him, to say, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm praying to the one who hears and can do something about it. Prayer's not a game. And in fact, your prayer life shows your dependence on God on his goodness, on his patience, on his willingness to listen to you. Your prayer life shows your dependence on God. See, I love this quote from Paul E. Miller in his book, A Praying Life. This is a fantastic book on prayer. He says, We have an allergic reaction to dependency, but this is the state of heart of the heart most necessary for a praying life. A needy heart 
is a praying heart. Dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. So your prayer life will show whether you depend on God or not. I don't know about you, but I am so naturally driven to just the the things that I can do. I think about the different areas of my life as a parent. I want to read parenting books and you know have a you know calm parenting approach and you to be be consistent with the way I discipline. And in relationships, someone comes to me with a problem. What do I first initially want to do? Nearly all the time, how can I fix it for you? Do you guys do that? We do this, don't we? You know, I think in my in my job or in different jobs I've had in the past. You know, what do I want to achieve? What's my strategic plan and goal? You know, even as a pastor, what's the what's the wise info that I need to give to to make this solution this situation better? But what we see here is the importance of prayer and the reality that prayer shows our dependence on God. Let's be that kind of a church that keeps prayer at the center. Yes, let's you know, read books, give advice. Let's serve each other as a church. Let's use all of our time and energy and skills for Jesus and his glory. But let's not forget about prayer. Let's build our Christian life on prayer and dependence on God and let the other things flow out of that. Let's be a church that shows that we're dependent on God by our prayer. Yeah? And so that's what we see in the first two visions. And then we see Amos has a third vision. But this one is a little different. Pick it up with me from verse 7. The Lord was standing there by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? I replied, a plumb line. (coughs) Then the Lord said, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will no longer spare them. Israel's high places will be deserted and Israel's sanctuaries will be in ruins. I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. See, in the third vision, Amos sees God himself standing by a wall and he's holding a plumb line. That's kind of, it's just a string with a weight at the end of it. And so because of gravity, it hangs down straight. And so you would use the plumb line to see if the brickwork or whatever building you're building was kind of, was it level? Is it straight or is it crooked? This is kind of like an ancient Near Eastern laser level, right? And God says he's going to use it not to test the wall, but to test Israel, to see if Israel, God's people, are straight or crooked. And what he finds is that Israel are a cracked and crooked and broken wall, and all that they're good for is to be destroyed. He sees that they're not straight. They haven't lived Uprighteous kind of lives. They haven't done what they ought to have done. That's what we've seen time and time again through the book of Amos. See, God's been patient. He's given them so many opportunities, but now he can't ignore it any longer. And the rest of chapter 7 kind of unpacks this tragic story of God's judgment of Israel for their failure to listen to him. There's this really ironic moment where uh, Amos says in chapter 2 that he critiques Israel for failing to listen to the prophets. And then here in chapter 7, verse 12, what does Amaziah, the chief priest, do? He says to Amos, get lost. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to listen to you. The, the, The tragedy and the irony of the kind of people of Israel just wrapped up in that one story. Israel would rather continue in their pride and their false security And they've refused to see how spiritually needy they are. See, the real issue, though, is their hearts. They don't want to listen to someone else. What they need is a true security. That's the third point. A true security. Because Israel's problem is actually your problem and it's my problem. 
Our biggest issue is not that we sometimes disobey certain rules or do little things that we shouldn't. It's not even that we don't care for those that we ought or that we trust in the things that we have rather than in God. See, those are just symptoms. They're symptoms of the bigger problem that we have, which is that we don't want to listen to God. We don't trust him. We don't want to put our security in him. And so because of that, we have a broken relationship with God. And what we need is something deeper and longer lasting than just someone, a man sent by God to tell us to come back. See, because while Amos continually did that, it didn't bring about lasting change in the lives of the Israelites. And, and Amos critiques Israel for their, the sacrificial system and the way that their hearts aren't in it. They have this system of sacrificing animals so that God could view them as now clean again and as right before him, but they need something more. They need something more than just God's word or this, this old system of sacrifice. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus. See, come across with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We'll pick it up from verse 11. Uh, the New Testament book of Hebrews centers on the reality of how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people in the Old Testament. And it says this, in, pick it up with me in chapter 10, verse 11. It says, Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. See, the Old Testament system was set up to kind of provide a temporary relief for, for different sins that the people committed, but it can't actually deal with the problem. Verse 12, though, But this man, Jesus after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. See, Jesus offers far more than just warnings. He offers far more even than praying for us, although he does do both of those things. What he does is he offers his life as a sacrifice for us, one sacrifice valid forever to deal with our big problem, our hearts that don't want to listen to him. See, And the hope of the gospel is that if we take up Jesus' offer of forgiveness because of his death, that we're now right with God. The Bible uses this word sanctify, which is just a kind of Christian word, and it means that God's made us able to have relationship with him again. He's washed us clean. We're able to be his people. See, this was always God's plan. Even when he had Israel in the Old Testament before Jesus, his plan was that the prophets and the sacrificial system and everything back then was looking forward to Jesus, to the way that Jesus would deal with humanity's heart problem. See, Hebrews 10 then goes on in verse 15, 16, 17 to quote from Jeremiah 31 about this great promise. And he says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. See, this is the great paradox of Christianity. True security comes not by my own wealth or the things that I can do, but by seeing my need, by seeing who I am before God and my need for him to come and forgive me. This is the great paradox. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand their spiritual need and their own spiritual bankruptcy and want to come to God for forgiveness. See, Israel's big problem, humanity's big problem, is that in our pride, 
we think we can do it on our own. We build ourselves up with this false sense of security and we think, oh yeah, if there is a God, surely he'd think I'm all right. You know, I'm better than heaps of other people. But at the cross, we see both the result of our sin that it actually cost Jesus his life to save us. And at the cross, he deals with our heart problems so that we can come back into relationship with him. If, if you're new to the Christian faith, if you're here this morning exploring who Jesus is, then this is what you need to hear. Christianity is not about a bunch of rules that you can keep or ways that you can kind of access God. It's about God in the person of Jesus coming and dying for you, offering you forgiveness so that you can come back into relationship with him. Christianity isn't about rule keeping, but about a compassionate and loving God who wants to know you. I trust for many of us, this is the foundation of our lives. We're not trusting in other things to make us right before God, but we're trusting in Jesus. That's why we want to come and listen to him, sing his praises, gather around Jesus as we do church together. What are you trusting in? Are the things that you're trusting in, will they last? even in the face of economic recession, in the face of a global pandemic, even in the face of illness or death, what have you got your trust in? There's only one thing that you can have your trust in. It's Jesus and his perfect sacrifice. I said at the start, I wanted to explore together what a truly secure life would look like. And so I want to just spend a bit of time now kind of applying some of this. Amos 6 and 7 kind of gives us a case study of false security. And so we want to actually explore what would it look like to have true security in Jesus. See, true security in Christ would lead to a steady, a centered identity based on my relationship with God as Father. The truly secure person in Christ is able to sacrificially give and love and serve others because they know that God has done that for them first. They're safe and secure in that relationship with God. A truly secure Christian would have boldness and confidence to proclaim the hope of the gospel because before it's something that you speak, it's the hope that has captivated your own heart. What would the truly secure Christian dream about? I take it that if your security is in Jesus and in his work for you, then the truly secure Christian is on about seeing, helping others see how good Jesus is. Helping others see that Jesus is the king, that he's the Lord, that it's all about his glory. That the, the truly secure Christian isn't dreaming of side hustles and, and ways to make money and their own pleasure and experiences and what instruments they can bang on to get a good noise. No, no, they're, they're using all of their gifts and skills for God's glory. They're dreaming about how to make God more known, more famous, give him the recognition and praise that he deserves. The truly secure Christian's thoughts and desires and dreams don't center on themselves, but on Jesus. So I love Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says this, But everything that was a gain to me... I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. 
See, it's not like Paul's saying that everything in his life is now worthless, but what he is saying is that compared to knowing Jesus, the comparative value of everything in his life has just dropped. That, that Jesus is the utmost value, the one that he centers his life on. Rather than the good things that we try to bring to God to show him how good we are, or, or the things that we're tempted to live for and put our hope in and security in other than God. See, if we get this reality, if we're truly secure in Christ, it'll lead us to living for Christ. See, security in Christ leads to living for Christ. We've been given new hearts now. That's the promise of the Old Testament that has been fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why EV exists, to help us live as followers of Jesus with new hearts and new lives, transformed by what God has done, and to see more and more people join us, to live as disciples of Jesus. See, this reality shapes everything. And I want to just land us here this morning by seeing how that reality shapes the way we think about money. Sometimes churches can get a bad rap for talking about money too much. And as a, as a church, we work really hard to not do that. We don't pass an offering bag around. We try to limit the way we talk about it because we're aware of the dangers of talking about it too much. But the reality that we've seen here today and over the book of Amos is that it's their wealth that has led to their pride. It's all the things that they have that has raised up in them this false sense of security and complacency and pushed God right out to the very edge. And Jesus says this, doesn't he? He says that money has the potential to distract us, to enslave us, to to make us proud, to stop us from realizing our need before God. Israel were physically rich but spiritually bankrupt. Their money stopped them from seeing the real problem. See, how would the truly secure Christian think about their money? They wouldn't be motivated to give by guilt or by fear or by trying to earn God's favor, but instead would think about their money as an extension of what God's given them, of his love and mercy and the forgiveness that they've experienced. They would view their money as just another tool that God's given them, God's money in my pocket, in order that more people might know about Jesus might put their trust in him. See, your wealth, just like your prayer life, shows a lot about what you put your dependence in. Just like prayer acts as a a barometer for our, our dependence, our money does that. Our bank statements show us what we're trusting in. We just had our church AGM a couple weeks ago. Shout out to those of you who made it along. It was a great time. And it's worth just highlighting this for us as a church. I want to make two things clear. Uh, firstly, we're a member-funded church. Nearly all of the support that we raise for gospel ministry here in Auckland comes because each of us is giving. Each of us actually is committed to the cause of Jesus and wants to see Jesus made known in this city. See, I want to be clear. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus or this isn't your home church, I'm not, we don't really want your money. The gospel's free. It's a gift. We want you to come and experience life in Jesus. But for those of us who call this church home, we need to think carefully about our money and how we're using it. It's worth saying as well as being a primarily member-funded church that the salaries and the kind of money that we get that gets used here at EV, we want to be really transparent from it. 
Anyone is welcome to kind of ask us how we're spending our money, what it goes to. There's no flash cars and fancy houses going around. There's no bonuses for people giving or anything like that. But no, the money that we get as a church goes towards gospel ministry so that more people can trust in Jesus. And it's been so wonderfully encouraging to see over this last season how many of us have sacrificially and generously given towards seeing a new building for our campus on the North Shore. So a hub that we can use for gospel training and to to see people in that region come to put their trust in Jesus. And so many of us have been sacrificially and generously partnering to see that happen. But one of the things that came out of the AGM was that 60% of the people who call this church home are financially partnering with this church, which means that 40% of the family units who call this church home aren't. 40% of us aren't experiencing the joy of financially partnering together in the cause of the gospel to make Jesus known. 40% of us are missing out what God wants to do in our hearts by helping us to value Jesus above all things and putting our security in him and what he's done for us, not in our wealth. 40% of us are missing out on that joy and blessing that comes from partnering together. And I I recognize that for lots of us, there are legitimate financial reasons why partnering financially isn't a thing that you're able to do at this time. And in fact, if that's you and you're struggling, come and talk to one of the pastors at EV. We'd love to actually help you and walk through that with you. But for some of us, uh, we've joined EV in the last year or two, and we've never actually gotten around to kind of setting up financially partnering with this church that we call home. Maybe we don't think it'll make a difference. But remember, it's each of us together who are partnering to see the gospel go out as a church. Each each of us matters. And God, in fact, cares far more about your heart than about your money. And Jesus said it's better to give than to receive, and and he gave up his life for you. And so whatever it looks like for you, it might be $5 a month, but if, if if you're not currently financially partnering with us as a church and you call this church home... I think this passage leads us to to think about that, to ask the question, what's stopping me from getting the blessing and the joy of partnering with church to see Jesus made known? As we look at this case study of Israel and their wealth and their complacency, it should make us ask questions of our own hearts. Am I being generous? Are the things that I have that I'm in my budget, are they, are they needs or are they kind of just wants? What are they willing to put off that new iPhone upgrade or that uh, next overseas holiday and move it a bit closer to home or that new car for the sake to free up some more financial space so that I can partner and be generous for the cause of the gospel? See, I think Amos 6 and 7 gives us a case study of where not to put our security. Don't put it in in your wealth, because it won't last. You can't take it with you into eternity. Don't put it in your wealth, because what that will do will be build up for you a sense of false complacency, that you'll think that you actually don't need God anymore. See, don't get sucked into the Kiwi dream. I think the Kiwi dream is something something like this. Tell me if this sounds like it rings true. It's a rewarding career. It's owning your own home. Uh, having comfortable holidays and retiring a little bit earlier, maybe than the kind of cutoff so that you can kind of enjoy, really enjoy those last few years of your life. 
Sophie and I recently um, just went up for a couple of nights to magnify heads, and we drove past a bunch of like retirement villages up there. And I just looked out and I thought, wow, these people have spent their whole life saving up so they could have the dream retirement on the beach. But they all couldn't really enjoy it. Their bodies were breaking down, they were old, and they'd lived their whole lives for the end of their life and, and got there and realized that it wasn't actually going to live up to what they'd hoped. Don't get sucked in by the Kiwi dream. It seems harmless, but it takes the glory away from God and puts it on ourselves and, and, and puts our trust not on God and his provision, but on ourselves. Rather, let's look at this case study from Amos and find our true security in Jesus. Not in the wrong places, but in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Trusting him for our true security and valuing him above all else. Let's pray that we might do that. Father God, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that on the cross, he took the punishment for our sins and died in our place and showed himself to be what we truly need. In Jesus, we are secure. We pray for those among us this morning who don't yet know the security that comes from trusting Jesus. Would you work in their hearts this morning? We pray for those among us here this morning who are tempted to put their security elsewhere. Would you do a work in our hearts this morning to help us center our lives and our identities, help us to be captivated by Jesus and what he's done, and to see him as valuable above all else. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.